Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim, and we'll be back with our normal guests this week. We'll have Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. So this will not be a continuation of the Africans Against the World series. Uh, this is just a regular podcast where Tom, Trevor, and I read a text, talk about it, um, and see what we can make of it. So we will be back with the fourth installment of Africans Against the World um, probably next week as we're trying to do about one a week with those. Uh, but, but for this week, you're just going to get a conversation uh, between Tom, Trevor, and I on the perpetual virginity of Mary. Now, this was a, a treatise, a letter that Augustine wrote to a guy called Helvidius, who we don't know anything about. And Jerome was trying to explain why he believed that Scripture said that Mary had always been a virgin. Um, and it was, a, it was a belief that Jerome held that apparently other Christians held um, because the status of her virginity was important uh, to bear Christ who was um, sinless as well as it also indicates his um, uh, Jerome uh, representing sort of the general belief of the early church uh, that virginity was a higher calling than marriage. So they didn't, uh, and Jerome may actually even at the end of the text kind of uh, disparages marriage a little bit, but at the very least believed that uh, Christ and Paul and those who chose to not be married chose the better part. They chose a more difficult path. Um, and so it's a uh, it's a little bit of a hard thing to hear, and for modern, uh, especially modern Protestants, um, I'm married, Trevor's married, um, and so that tends to be more normal for us, and we don't look at it as any less of a calling, uh, but Jerome seems to have. Um, so um, we will talk about that, and I, I hope this is not uh, disrespectful to our Catholic listeners insofar as we are going to talk about something that is not a belief that any three, uh, any of the three of us hold, uh, but it will give some explanation as to where this uh, belief comes from and how early um, Christians uh, defended their position that, in fact, Jesus had no um, biological brothers and sisters. Um, so that is, Mary only had one child, and it was Jesus, and she remained a virgin. Um, so uh, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, if we did not... Um, uh, if we did not explain this well, uh, remember, first of all, that we're just trying to explain Jerome's belief and not necessarily everything that all Catholics believe about Mary or something. We're just dealing with this one piece of the puzzle and how Jerome himself defends it. Um, so that that is our goal, and uh, I think we all learned a lot from it, um, and it is very helpful for Christians to know uh, the entirety of their history and even those beliefs that are different from ones that we may hold. Old, um, if uh, you know, I think most of our listeners are probably uh, Protestant, given uh, the the friendships and the relationships that uh, Tom, Trevor, and I have. Um, but if you have any comments or concerns, uh, please do write us. Let us know what you think. Um, we appreciate it. And uh, yeah, so here is on the perpetual virginity of Mary. Interesting. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, so the perpetual virginity of Mary. Um, <laughs> this is, uh, we're going to jump right in. Uh, we are, uh, three Protestant guys. One of us goes to an Anglican church. One of us uh, goes to a evangelical church, um, with some sort of, uh, charismatic roots, I guess, Pentecostal roots. And, uh, I am a member of a Baptist church, but teach at a Catholic seminary. Uh, so I, and, uh, getting my PhD from a Catholic seminary, although I guess we could 
just have there's another conversation about how catholic my university is <laughs> um, but but my seminary is definitely the seminary that i teach at is definitely catholic um and uh so we are going to talk about one of these things that protestants are always interested in which is mary um and marian devotion the the place of mary in the catholic faith um, and and where did this all come from? And it's just not part of our uh, piety, you could say. And as as far as uh, most Protestants don't discuss Mary very often, except for around Christmas. Um, I do know some Anglican pr- uh, monks that have kind of a Marian devotion, which seems a little bit more Catholic. So maybe there are strands of that within Anglicanism. But o- on the whole, um, yeah. it's basically bizarre to protestants speaking of that i just it felt so like on topic when this happened and i was like oh this is so great given what we're reading but uh it was like two weeks ago i went to um i went to kansas city missouri and we were with some friends who also go to our church so we all wanted to check out a local church on the sunday we were there and we went to saint mary's and it's like this super old, um, uh, you know, Episcopal technically uh, church there that, yeah, they've they've got the whole shebang. I mean, the whole thing's set up like the altar and everything is literally has the words. Um, oh, what does it have? It's got the uh, and blessed the be the, fruit. the Lord. No, blessed be blessed. the fruit of thy womb in Latin. Oh, the Hail Mary. Uh, just, just that section though. Just the, yeah. literally, blessed be the fruit of that Benedictus womb. fructus ventri tu yeah. yeah, it's got that, and then it's got. In fact, it's kind of unique because, well, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but it had it had like a lot of um, like women saints on it, even though the artist like was a man who designed it in the eighteen hundreds. But anywho, it was a really cool looking church. But they had they concluded the service, and this was not not typical by any means um by actually singing to mary and saying this prayer to mary and at the very 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 end and then they all like walked out and i was like i was like oh and then when we said to one of the one of my friends he used to be roman catholic he said to one of the parishioners yeah i used to go to a a catholic church and then they're like you mean roman catholic he's like (laughs) yeah what do you mean they're like they're like we're catholic we're anglo catholic and it was like okay so yeah it was uh it was really it was cool it was a really cool experience it was um a cool looking church too and um but i was like yeah definitely like this is not normal but this is also exciting because now i'm reading jerome so (laughs) felt like i was almost doing my research somehow but anyway that's good yeah, well, so it's, in, I mean, so I should, I guess, say from the outset that some of this has roots as far back as Jerome. Uh, Augustine talks about Mary a little bit. There's some discussion in Augustine about whether or not um, she's sinless. Uh, he at least uses the phrase full of grace as from the Hail Mary and says that this puts her in a unique place closer to like what humans were before the fall. Um, so he says that uh, we are we are in need of grace as general humans, but Adam was in a sense full of grace before he fell, um, and then grace was returned to him through the cross and through Christ. It gets a little more complicated than that, but the role, but Mary is full of grace, and that means that in a sense she almost doesn't. 
I'm not exactly sure how this works uh, in terms of like causal relationships, uh, but the grace of Christ is sort of applied to her from her very conception. Um, and but but what's interesting is the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception uh, was only first considered. I should say the dogma um, was only first uh, uh, risen to the status of dogma in the, in the 19th century in Vatican I. Um, and uh, it was one of the only times that the Pope has actually spoken infallibly, um, that is, ex cathedra, um, and uh, although contrary to popular belief, as you all know, but the Pope is not infallible, um, but he can speak infallibly in certain instances. Um, and so this doctrine of the perpetual virginity, the immaculate, con- or well, not the per- perpetual virginity, but the immaculate conception and uh, the assumption of Mary are dogmas uh, that don't aren't officially risen to that status until later, uh, but they do have roots. So what we're reading from Jerome will bring us to the roots of some of those doctrines. So it's not that they were never thought about in the Catholic church until the 19th century. It's just that they hadn't been established as official dogma of the church until later, uh, which is a whole other question about uh, what does it mean for something to rise to the level of dogma um, and doctrine and things in the Catholic church. But I, I just th- thought I'd point that out. So there's there's sort of a, a newness to this and also an ancient element to this. Hey, Chad. So just to clarify, um, Vatican I affirms the Immaculate Conception, that she's born essentially sinless, right? Yep. And then That's right. was, the ascension, was the Ascension also affirmed as dogma at Vatican I, or was that affirmed earlier? Uh, so the Assumption of Mary uh, is, is later, is 1950. Okay. Oh. Yeah, so, uh, so the Assumption is almost 100 a, a years later. <laughs> Okay. In the 20th so where, century. Where was yeah. the assumption uh, affirmed as dogma? I don't remember what the council was, uh, okay. but, but before Vatican II. Um, and again, so like the way that the church would explain this stuff is to say, we are only now recognizing what the church had always taught. Um, uh, but, you know, so there's like, we, we can sort of parse language there. But, uh, but yeah, it was officially affirmed. Um, I believe it was actually 1950. Uh, he references here several church fathers, including Ignatius, Polycarp, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, and Tertullian. And he seems, I, I'm not following everything he's saying in this, but he seems to be saying that these guys taught a perpetual virginity, except for maybe Tertullian. He might be responding that Tertullian didn't teach that because he actually accuses Tertullian of not belonging to the church. So I basically had two questions. My first was, is he actually referencing things these guys wrote that we're aware of? Second of all, did we encounter these things? Because in the course of our studies for this podcast, I don't recall coming across one of these teachers um, as uh, re- referencing the perpetual virginity. I don't know. What do you guys think or what do you guys remember? Well, I don't remember either, but I just imagine that we just didn't read the relevant work by them, right? So Tertullian does not, um, uh, he does not, none. So what he's saying in these sections is that, um, yeah, he's actually putting Tertullian to the side uh, because he's saying he sort of uh, doesn't affirm the right things. Um, But um, yeah, so what those people affirmed was that Mary was a virgin. Um, None of them actually state explicitly that she was always a virgin. Uh. Um, 
And so most so what's interesting about the backdrop of this conversation is we find that the what Tertullian is kind of trying to do is sort of what the theologians do in general about a lot of these debates is they're trying to say on the one hand Christ was fully human on the other hand he had these sort of divine qualities how do we hold them both together and so it seems that like Helvetius uh, the guy who uh, occasioned this writing um, which are, are Helvetius excuse me um, which we can talk about in a minute Jerome's pretty dismissive of and it's kind of funny uh, <laughs> but Helvetius seems to sort of say but if you think that she couldn't have had the concupiscence uh, of sex um, you're sort of not affirming that she's really human and that therefore that Jesus is not really human. So there's a conversation about that, that seems to be uh, the Gnostics um, sort of liked some of this conversation because they could say that uh, Jesus wasn't really human. Um, and so oh. there's this like uh, there, there's this conversation where they're trying to say, okay, how do we affirm that Mary did was human but was able to have a child without having sex? Um, and, and so I think that's why he brings them up. Uh, but, but I mean, as far as, uh, as far as I'm aware, Jerome is the only one who makes the full claim that he makes here, um, and explains thoroughly that she was a virgin, not only, uh, before, but in perpetuity as the name, uh, would imply. Mm. <clears throat> um, yeah. So then Jerome, Jerome, did we read that bit of Jerome? Do you remember where he's making? So that's an argument against the uh, Gnostics. You were saying basically that that Mary had to have that component to herself, otherwise she wouldn't have been human. That was in an argument against the Gnostics. Yeah, that I mean that I'm taking that as uh, I read that was reading something else. Yeah, that's not in this bit. Uh, but I, I, yeah, I was just sort of implying that the larger conversation about what does it mean for for the divine to come into the human world. Oh yeah, no, that's what I mean though. That's that's what he's putting aside here, right? That's why he's saying Tertullian isn't really a Christian, essentially. Yeah, that's one. Well, that's one of the things. Yeah, Tertullian was not. Um, you know, he was not sainted. He wrote some things that can be read with profit, but um, but only the early Tertullian is considered sort of acceptable in the church. Yeah, no, I just mean in terms of what Jerome is writing right here, Jerome basically says that Tertullian did not belong to the church. And so he seems to be yeah. refuting some teaching of Tertullian, which is presumably this teaching that he had while in discussion with the Gnostics, right? Yeah. And, and did we read that? I don't recall. I don't recall reading it. No. no. Okay. What about? And so I mean, then, he, oh, go ahead. Sorry. He wrote. He wrote a, a whole lot. Uh, so, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't remember reading it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you know when did the perpetual virginity of Mary become uh, dogma? When, when was it affirmed as dogma? I don't know when the perpetual virginity of Mary was affirmed as dogma. I, I just I know a lot of this stuff about the dogma because it comes uh, because of my graduate studies where um, John Henry Newman is influential and maybe um, integral to the development of the doctrines of the Immaculate Conception and the um, and the Assumption. Mm. Yeah. Mm, I uh, know that. Yeah. So without John Henry Newman, those doctrines don't come into they, they don't become dogma because um, he developed the theory of development. Um, that is that the church 
not only de- is delivered everything like so there's this idea that um christ delivered to peter in nuce in nut form all the truths of the faith um and what people like aquinas did was logically extrapolate from what was given in nuce um and what uh John Henry Newman says is that they are able to develop. Um, it's not a logical extension of what was handed over to Peter, um, but rather what was developed uh, to be in conformity with the general principles, maybe not logically extrapolated as Aquinas tried to do. Um, and I'm speaking in very broad brush strokes, um, yeah. but the, but the idea was like, you could, you could sort of, you could never come because you, you have to realize that you could never say anything that's totally new. Um, so how do we say something that, how do we say something that seems different while showing its antiquity? Um, and how do we hold these things in, in tandem? If everything was given to Peter, um, well, then it should have all been written down by Peter, and we should have known exactly everything that all Catholics need to believe to be Catholic from the time of Peter onward. Well, that's not, you know, we that transubstantiation. Um, other things are not written literally uh, before Aquinas. So how is he able to uh, say what he says and it still be in accord with what was handed on to Peter? Well, it's a logical extension um, was the yeah. kind of the idea. Um, and then what Newman says is that it's not that it's even a logical de- extension. It's just a doctrine that develops. Um, and it's just something that like can kind of, you know, um, it's just following a trajectory sort of. Um, and that's, yeah. Uh, I, th- I mean, I, I don't know if that makes any sense or if you want to push back on that or whatever, but. No, it makes sense. I mean, I would push back in the sense that I'm not sure how much I agree with Newman on all that, but. Uh, something about Newman's stuff has always to some degree resonated. Oh, not, I mean, obviously I'm not a Catholic and I'm not, I don't have very large uh, Roman Catholic uh, uh, sympathy. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but I, at the same time, uh, you know, I, I, you know, something of this idea still resonates with me just simply for the fact that prior to Christ's coming, uh, you know, Old Testament saints clearly did not have a full comprehension of, of the gospel prior to the gospel actually playing out. Um, and so there clearly must be some sense in which doctrine is being further revealed, in a sense, if you will. Um, and if that was true at that kind of crux in history, you know, at that moment um, when Christ comes, or when Christ came, I should say, then why might it not also be true later? I mean, I, I, I'm not saying I believe that. I'm just saying that that's something I've entertained for sure. Yeah, I mean, one of my, uh, another project that I want to work on sometime is sort of a, a Protestant version of what's called the Vincentian Canon, um, that which is necessary to be believed uh, at all times and in all places by all Christians. Um, that is, like what is the one core thing uh, throughout all ages that is the thing that Christians believe. Um, And so for Catholics, this is whatever was developed to Peter in Nuce is the same thing that persists through the last 2000 years. Um, And so they're able to like make statements, like I say, that relate to Aquinas or to Newman, um, like I say, development, logical extension. But what, what is it that a Protestant, how can a Protestant say, 
uh, well, there was someone, let's, let's take, you know, the 800s. There was someone alive in the 800s uh, and who, you know, didn't know uh, like the solas of the Reformation or didn't have the scripture in their hand because they weren't able to read. Like, what is it that they believed that made them a Christian um, that could be the same for me? Like, what is the point of continuity throughout Christian history that I can affirm as a as a Protestant, um, even though Protestantism, as it were, you know, is basically a, a let's say a creation of the 16th century. Um, and so how, how is it that I can sort of tie into um, the rest of Christian history and have some um, constancy, consistency with these other people? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's super interesting. Um, so anyway, that's, uh, but, uh, so Mary, <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so Jerome wrote this work, um, in, uh, 383 or 384 before he translated the, uh, a lot of the, um, old Testament from Hebrew into Latin and several of the gospels before he'd done the Vulgate, uh, which he's known for, although he didn't do the whole thing. Um, he, he writes this, um, and he seems to be really annoyed by one Helvidius, who we know nothing else about except for um, this one writing from Jerome, which actually it's kind of funny. Jerome seems to indicate in the early portions that he basically doesn't want to give this – or no, actually it's somewhere in the middle. He's like, I don't want this guy to have any fame, um, and the only fame that Helvidius has is because of Jerome. <laughs> um, and so Jer what Jerome was most afraid of writing a refutation of this guy um, would sort of by um, by connecting by Jerome refuting him and connecting this guy's name to this work uh, Jerome allowed him to live in perpetuity <laughs> um, and yeah. uh, that was why he didn't want to respond to him in the first place um, I, I guess we could just start like uh, I wanted to read just some of the like broadsides that Jerome makes against Helvidius because there's sort of there's another question that we've brought up occasionally, which is sort of why are all of these uh, why do all these theologians use such like overheated rhetoric, sometimes like nasty and kind of angry rhetoric? Um, we haven't done uh, Luther yet, but you know Luther will do the same sort of thing where just sort of extreme and and very uh, angry and would not be kind of uh, would not be polite uh, at least in the 21st century we would not consider this like an appropriate way to have a conversation with someone with whom you disagree um, you don't say things like I have deferred doing so not because it is difficult uh, matter to maintain the truth and refute an ignorant bore who has scarce known the first glimmer of learning. But because I was afraid my reply might make my my reply might make him worth uh, defeating, appear worth defeating, yeah. and he wants to lay the axe of the gospel uh, to the root of this barren tree. Uh, you know, like what? Why is this even considered acceptable? Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's. I read Meredith just this first passage, and she's like, "This reads like a diss track on a rap album." Like. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much like he just goes to town just how how awful like kind of explaining uh, this is why i'm writing this but it's not at all because this moron's worth like responding to and just yeah so i like the end actually the best like so that helvidius who has never learned to speak may at length learn to hold his tongue like i was just like man that's a poetic way to put it to him um, well, I, I, was I would like to add too on that end, which I really do like, 
um, where he says, uh, and because this is in chapter 24, he says, because I think that finding the truth too strong for you, you will turn to disparaging my life and abusing my character, which is what he's been doing to Helvidius. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then he says, and then he says, it is the way of weak women to talk tittle-tattle in corners when they have been put down by their masters. And he says, I shall anticipate you. And he goes, I assure you that I shall regard your railing as a high distinction, since the same lips that assail me have disparaged Mary. And I, a servant of the Lord, am favored with the barking eloquence as his mother. <laughs> so Yo. he's also just being hypocritical by saying, oh, yep. you're uh, going to, I know you're going to rail against me. I know you're going to make fun of me and challenge my character and all of this kind of stuff, but that's okay. Cause you did it to Mary too. And I'm humbled that, you know, that, you know, it's just, how can he not see that he's doing the same thing that he's telling Helvidius that he's going to do? Yeah. I, the, there's that and also isn't it i mean we're kind of inferring this given we know jerome's name and barely know helvidius's and also given the way he does refer to helvidius but it seems like he's majorly punching down as well right i mean it seems like <laughs> it seems like this this poor this poor helvidius like had some ideas and then jerome was just like nah and maybe helvidius said some potentially disrespectful things in his pamphlet or something but either way yeah either but even then it just really seems like this is quite a way to respond if especially if you are as you say you are like the master of this person in some sort of spiritual sense it it makes me think jerome is like one of these you know, I won't name actual philosophers' names, but there's, like, these philosophers who think they're, like, greater than God in, like, contemporary philosophy who they get in arguments, and if you're, like, a lonely PhD grad student, they don't really care what you think. Or let's just, you could even be a full-blown professor at a university that's not well-known, and they'll just sort of crap all over your arguments. And it's sort of like, he just reminds me of that. It's like as if he's just sort of like, ah... Uh, I'm not gonna give any respect to this puny. What's his name? I mean, so yeah, it, I don't know. It gives me the feeling that Jerome, by this point that he wrote this, is already, especially if he's being urged to reply to this pamphlet, he's already like pretty famous in some sort of sense of the word back then, and like intellectually respected, and so he's now just like majorly punching down on this guy. <laughs> Well, I mean, it is actually kind of interesting that he doesn't uh, – Jerome actually isn't at the height of his fame, let's say. Oh, really? Um, so, yeah, so he's still kind of an up-and-comer. Jerome's a really – like as I was reading a quick um, – if you uh, if you have $100 to burn, uh, there's uh, an encyclopedia of the early church. This is a really good resource put out by Oxford. Uh, my my uh, my doctoral advisor bought it for me though, so – um, I, but, uh, but it, it, it's, it's, it's thinking expensive, but yeah. So about the time that he's writing this, um, he only, um, he'd only just sort of received the favor of Pope Damasus. Um, and, and that was basically what gave him the platform to, uh, begin to consider doing more work with the translations of the Bible. Um, so he's actually not quite got to, um, his, his fame. Um, Jerome, like, 
Jerome just sort of traipses around the, the Mediterranean, especially the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, doesn't have much favor at home for a long time. Uh, you know, he's, he's always been a little irascible. Like he writes some of this, he writes to these women and just talks, well, even at the end, the way that he describes marriage is brutal. Um, and like, he just talks about how awful it must be for anyone to consider being married or being a woman who gives birth. Like, I mean, he's sort of, it's just, it's, it's, you know, you could, I, I don't, he, yeah, he's just not very, it's really hard to read him sympathetically. Um, yeah. And it's so <laughs> sad. Cause I was just at, uh, the Nat, uh, Nat and Nelson's art museum in, um, or Atkin Nelson, sorry, art museum in, uh, in Kansas City, and I saw a painting of St. Jerome, and I was literally like, oh, this is so cool, and he looks so, like, he's like, they paint him as really old, and he's, like, over this table with all these books, and you just look like a kindly old scholar, and I read this, and I'm like, oh, no, no, that's not how he was at all, apparently. But yeah, it was it kind of ruined my image of him because for a while I felt like, oh, I'm gonna love this Saint Jerome guy, and now I'm like, oh. Well, he's like <laughs> so for for feminist theologians, um, he's the first place they go to say this is why patriarchy destroyed the church. Um, like, I mean, Jerome is is the. He's the vanguard. Um, like he's, you know, if you take down Jerome, you know, you've really, or when you, exp excuse me, not, well, expose and then take down is sort of the goal for a lot of feminist theologians. And Jerome is, he's the one that you got to take down because he's clearly patriarchal and looks down on women and all this stuff. Yeah. Mm. I, I would feel like he's one of many. <laughs> Well, yeah. he probably is one of many, but he has all these other letters to women where he, he you know, says they should not. It's just he, he's very hateful sounding in a lot of his letters. Yeah. Well, his um, I mean, the stuff he says here about, you know, virginity is pretty disconcerting. Right. I mean, this guy is clearly and I don't know to what degree he's representative of the larger Catholic community of that day. But I mean, you know, he sits here and he's like, he almost, and maybe I'm overstating it. He almost kind of says either you are a virgin or you are nothing but a tavern woman, right? Like, I yeah. mean, that's in essence, he's saying if Mary had sex, then she's a prostitute. Like, that's almost kind of the assertion he's making. And he makes disclaimers. Like, he says things like, don't get me wrong. I know marriage is good. But you can hear it in his tone that he doesn't think that. You know what I mean? Like he says it, but it's like it seems so contrary to everything else he's writing. Um, uh, he, he says here in 22, he says, uh, now that I'm about to institute a comparison between virginity and marriage, I beseech my readers not to suppose that in praising virginity, I have in the least disparaged marriage. Uh, and I've separated the saints of the Old Testament from those of the new. Um, like, you know, so, I, but at the same time, that's like him, that's like me saying not to offend, but, and then what am I going to do? I'm going to begin <laughs> to offend because like, uh, I mean, he just really, he just seems to have a really low view of marriage and for sure, as he's applying it to Mary, he's making it really clear that if she had sex with Joseph, then she is disgusting. Like she is not worthy to bear uh, to bear Christ, like her, she has a uh, a, a soiled womb, 
And it's all a really low view, I think, of of motherhood and of marriage. I don't know. That's kind of my thought. Any pushback on that? Yeah, I mean that's exactly right. I'm, I like that he puts he puts uh, the wife on like uh, the the horns of a dilemma. At, uh, this is um, still twenty two. He says, um, "Enter the half naked victims of the passions, a mark for every lustful eye." Okay, so there's naked people here. The unhappy wife must either take pleasure in sex um, and perish or be displeased and provoke her husband. So basically she's either going to have sex um, and if she likes it too much, then she's in a problem. Or if she's displeased and doesn't seem to have any fun and it doesn't go well, then her husband's going to be mad. Um, <laughs> so there's no, there's no way. And then he says, hence arises discord, the seed plot of divorce. Um, so, you know, if uh, what's likely going to happen is you're going to you're going to either enjoy it too much and then therefore um, heaps uh, sort of um, scorn on you or you're going to be unhappy and then your husband's going to be mad and then you're going to end up in divorce. Uh, like, I mean, yeah, it's just it, yeah, he does. Yeah. It, yeah. It's nuts. It's absolutely yeah. nuts. <laughs> yeah. Well, this line and right this here, the virgin is defined as she that is holy in body and spirit. For it is no good to have virgin flesh if a woman be married in mind. I don't know what that means, but it sounds bad. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I like my only way to like go on and to try to defend him um, is to say that he has a true love and devotion for Mary. Um, and he is trying to be as over the top in his defense of the belief that was pervasive in the early church that virginity was the highest thing to um, sort of strive for, although not everyone could. Because he also says um, – nor, you know, I think you read a little bit of this, but nor do we say this to condemn marriage for virginity itself is the fruit of marriage. Um, and so he knows that he needs virgins. Um, and he says this interesting thing. He says that um, I rather so uh, Helvidius says that the Old Testament patriarchs were all married and therefore marriage should be OK. And Jerome says this interesting thing. He says. I rather think that in accordance with the different time, the difference in time and circumstance, one rule applied to the former, another to us upon whom uh, the ends of the world have come. And so he seems so he seems to sort of be saying that, like, there's a whole different rule for him um, and for his sort of place in uh, the history of the world that was different for the patriarchs. And therefore, that maybe marriage is not the highest good anymore as it once was. Now, again, I, so I think to try to be fair to Jerome, he thinks that he's reading scripture well. And he he's like his his scripture references and knowledge are clearly very good. Um, and he's doing all of this because he, th he's trying to be faithful to the teaching that, that he thinks comes from scripture. Um, and so, you know, and, and faithful to the Nicene Creed, which talks about it, that Mary is a virgin. Now, the rest of kind of Christendom aside from Roman Catholicism, well, at least I should say all Protestants would read the, the virginity as, uh, before, um, she was, before she could see from the Holy Spirit. Um, I think there's some disagreement in Eastern Orthodoxy how they view this now. But yeah, the so anyway, that's the only way I could kind of. 
that's the only way I could even try to read it like kindly. Yeah. <clears throat> the Eastern Orthodox mm. seem to hold to most of the same doctrines concerning Mary that the Catholics do. I could be wrong on that, but I just did a real, I mean, I've, I've never interacted with an Orthodox priest on this subject um, or read specific Orthodox theologians, just kind of cursory searches here and like on Google or stuff I've read in the past seems to say that they hold to immaculate conception assumption and um, uh, perpetual virginity. But I, I could be wrong on that. Yeah. Well, so what, um, like, I guess we could sort of describe the kind of arguments. Um, what uh, do we want to talk about? Uh, does, so does like the real big one, the one that seems to come up is there are references to Jesus's family, including his brothers. Um, so and, does, is, go ahead. And sisters. And sisters. Yeah. Um, so is Jerome convincing? Do When you read through Jerome, he knows the languages. He knows Hebrew, Latin, Greek, probably Syriac. Um, and he says, hey, sometimes fratres, uh, the Latin word for brothers, sometimes that just means cousins. And so whenever it, the scripture seems to refer to Jesus as having uh, brothers and sisters, that's not really what it means. Is he convincing? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> he, he gives several different <laughs> options for what brothers could mean, right? And yep. yeah, he talks yeah. about how you could, and all of these hold true in English too, right? I mean, I think the term brother yeah. has kind of like a very close um, range of meaning with Greek and with Latin, both. Um, he talks about how it could be close friends. Um, he talks about how it could be like brothers in Christ. You know, and we all use these terms. I call friends brother all the time, right? And um, and then he says it could be kinsman. Now, I do think this is funny. In English, we don't really use brother for kinsman, but I, I, I suspect that must be true that it had that range of meaning in in Greek and in Latin. I could be wrong. Uh, I've heard that, and I don't know if this is true because I don't know a lick of Hebrew, but I've heard that old Hebrew didn't have a separate word for cousins. Uh, and so they, and that seems to be true when I read the Old Testament. I don't, uh, I usually see like a description of relations, like, like Lot is referred to as Abraham's brother's son, you know, things like that. Um, so I've heard people say that about old Hebrew, but that's certainly not the case in Greek. Greek has a word for, for cousin. Um, and so, you know, it's when he gives examples of calling kinsmen brothers, he's, he almost every example is from the Old Testament. So, but either way, even regardless, like uh, I still, it still seems to me that the examples from the Old Testament that he, that he pulls and kind of shares are ones where it would still make some sense when talking, like, because they're mostly conversational. It's mostly Abraham saying to Lot something like, you are my brother, like we are brothers, let's not fight over this thing as he, as they're talking about where to, you know, where, where they should inhabit the land. But it seems in the New Testament they're giving descriptors that these people are Jesus's brothers. And if they were his cousins, I don't know why they wouldn't just put the word cousin, which certainly would have been available to them. Uh, so I, I, I don't buy it. Um, but even more than that, it's it's this. It's and this is the way all of his arguments really work. And, and I'm sympathetic to him. I, I don't want to, like, make fun of him in this because I have to do this, too. Um, all of us have beliefs that 
seem to contradict uh, sources of our beliefs, if that makes sense. Like, um, and so when I read the scripture, there are verses that prima prima facie, right, at first glance, seem to contradict what I believe. Uh, and I'll just give you one example. Hebrews 6 uh, famously says, uh, seems to state that a person can lose their salvation and once having given it up, have no chance to be saved again, right? That is That does not comport with my beliefs theologically. So what I have to do is I have to try to explain that passage away in some other way that fits my theological system. That's what Jerome's doing. So I'm sympathetic because I've done this kind of thing too. But at the end of the day, Jerome gives nobody any kind of reason to actually think that they should use the word brother to describe these people if they weren't actually his brothers. Like he's only saying it could be that. Like maybe they could use the word. And I, I will actually cede to Jerome every argument he makes in terms of possibility. And I think this is where all of his arguments fail. He's saying, hey, these passages might be or could be if we strained the logic, they could be interpreted this other way that fits my theological paradigm. I'll actually grant him all of that. I think you probably could interpret all of these passages the way he wants to interpret them. But the thing is, language doesn't work like logic and math. It's not the kind of thing that just gives you that always succumbs or or gives way to possibility. Language is much more malleable and much more problematic and much more difficult to really hammer down. And, you know, it's much more slippery, if you will. And mm -hmm. the, the, the slippery nature of language, it language is calling us to read words in certain ways. And basically every single passage that Helvidius brings, in my mind, seems to imply the things that Helvidius is saying about Mary, never what Jerome is saying. So it seems so I walk away from reading Jerome's paper and I go uh, he didn't convince me of anything. I already knew that these were possible interpretations and I don't think they're the right interpretations. That's kind of my take on basically every argument. Yeah, my my feeling was similar. I don't know my languages and all that as well, but I've heard this sort of argument before that really it means this. In fact, I listen to this podcast that's actually a radio show called Catholic Answers. Um, I don't, don't ask me why I listen to it. Just like I got onto it one time because like someone was on it that I knew. And then I, now I've just randomly listened to episodes and they, they've brought this up on like Mary specific episodes. And yeah, I just have the same thought. Okay. It's possible interpretation. Right. But what, what we now have to determine is what's more likely given the evidence or to put it another way, we're now doing an adductive argument. We're just asking what's sort of most in accord with the data. And these types of arguments are just tough admittingly, and they're yeah. not, they're not clean um, in any way. And this is sort of, to be honest, as much as philosophers like to think, act like uh, deductive arguments are doing a lot of work in philosophy, which they do sometimes at pivotal moments. For the most part, we're really sort of, we all know how to make valid arguments, so we're all just putting them up, and then it's all just sort of, what do we think about the premises? And there it's just sort of, do we think the premises are more likely true given everything else than not? 
And so it's the same sort of reasoning. It's sort of like, well, do we like this premise given, given everything else? And you could, you could just certainly say, and I think quite plausibly, it's like, it just doesn't seem as likely that they would use this word this way. Um, given the fact that they had a word at their disposal and also just, yeah, given like kind of the context of utterance. I mean, that is, that is the difference between like natural language and like, you know, mathematically precise language is in natural language. Yeah. You got to like infer from context of utterance and, you know, you're sort of doing this uh, intention reading um, in the sense that you're reading into the intentions of the speaker. And so, it's yeah, you read it and you're kind of like, eh, it's kind of hard to read it in this really stretched way, though. I'll admit if you had if you had other commitments. So like you really think, you know, virginity's, you know, it like that's the coolest. Anything less than that, you ruin your ruin. Well, then now I see the argument going that way. Like if premise one is virginity's great, uh, the premise two is. And also I can make these passages consistent with that. That makes a little more sense to me in terms of the way in which you're arguing, because the first thing would be a stronger reason, but this wouldn't be a reason to accept uh, the perpetual virginity by any means. You could just clearly be like, yeah, this the evidence here goes either way. So that's well, a, that. Sorry. Can I make this point real quick? Chad? Sure. Um, Trevor, that's a really good point. I think it's, it's about our other commitments. Right. Um, if a Catholic, uh, the, I think the best a Roman Catholic can do, because the Catholic is committed to believing that the Bible is inspired and infallible in some sense. I mean, I know there are different takes on to what degree or in what ways, but infallible in some sense. And so they want to assert that the Bible's true. Um, but they also have this dogmatic belief about Mary's perpetual virginity. They are beholden to that belief. And so their job is to try to reconcile the two and make them fit together. But me, I, as a non-Catholic standing independently, I want to look at it impartially because I want to believe the way that I want to, I, I want to believe what's true. So I'm going to try to, now, by the way, I don't mean that in a pejorative sense to the Catholic. I, I mean it only in the sense of an independent onlooker who doesn't have that prior commitment. I want to follow what inductively seems like the right path. I know that... Other people are in the same boat. Like I bring up that Hebrews 6 passage because I'm in the boat of having to make that square with what I believe. Um, but a non-believer, a person who's not a Christian or a person who believes that you can literally give up your salvation and if you do so, have no chance of ever coming back to it, they're not uh, committed to that. They can, they can sit there and say, we're following the more natural sense of the text and we're just following it inductively where it takes us. And so um, that's, I think, my problem with Jerome is Jerome is giving this defense and it's not convincing to a person who wouldn't believe already, which is fine if he's just trying to give other Catholics like an ability to support it. I think my big problem is in the midst of this, he scoffs and belittles and mocks Helvidius, who's making really good points. And if he just changed it up and said, look, Helvidius has some really good points here. I can see why some people might be led in this direction, but I think he would save a lot for me in terms of his ethos. Oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Well, so it's, it's uh, just um, from a uh, linguistic level, um, 
this so <laughs> I I love having databases where I can search for words. Um, and uh, so just just as a for instance. In um, Jerome's translation of Genesis 29, um, he talking about Jacob um, and Laban, he talks about his cousin, his consobrinus in Latin. Um, and so he like so Jerome knows uh, the word for cousin and uses it to translate a passage of Genesis 29. Um <laughs> <laughs> and, oh gosh! So, I mean, there, there, are, there. Are, it's not a common word. Uh, there are about seven or eight other instances. That's the most straightforward. Um, but there are about seven or eight other places where the word is used. Um, it's never used of Jesus's uh, kin, um, whatever they are. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there are there. There is a word that only means cousin and doesn't mean anything else uh, that Jerome clearly knows. Uh, which I, I think it's interesting as much scripture as he brings in his defense, you know, from a, from an evangelical sort of perspective, you'd say, man, this guy knows his Bible, right? Um, yeah. I mean, he is, he is bringing everything to the table except any cases where <laughs> there, where even in the Vetus Latina, so he hadn't translated the Vulgate at this time, but even in the old Latin text of the Bible, there are at least five places where the word for cousin is used. He never brings those up. Um, you know, as much as he knows the Bible, he is not bringing up cases where it clearly identifies cousins as cousins, um, and yeah. without any ambiguity, uh, but they are there. Um, yeah. and, uh, so anyway, I think it's kind of, it's just kind of interesting from a rhetorical standpoint, uh, that, that he knows the Bible as well as he does. Um, and I mean, I think like the idea of the independent onlooker, I, I mean, maybe I've been reading too many postmodern philosophers or something. I mean, I'm sort of suspicious of the idea of like a view from nowhere that we all come to the, we can come to the text independently of our commitments. Uh, but you know, that's a, maybe a separate conversation, but I, I mean, I see what you're saying, Tom, and I do agree on the whole, how you and uh, Trevor uh, put it like, and you brought up the Hebrew six passage, you know, mm -hmm. I do the same thing. Right. Uh, and so I think we all do kind of have these con commitments though, that guide us, um, oh, that we, uh, for, that we choose beforehand kind of. Yeah, for sure. We all have commitments for sure. Um, I'm not trying to say that there aren't existing biases or commitments for every person and that those don't inform in some sense. And I can see an argument wanting to try to take you, like trying to, you know, bring you to that point of recognizing that. But I mean, I think it seems clear to me that there are, um, that, that there are lots of arguments which are presented in such a way or which, which regard certain things to which your commitments are much different and are much softer in certain ways that enable yeah. you maybe yeah. not to be totally impartial, but to have a level of impartiality, which is very different from when you are trying to defend something to the core. And I, I think, I, I think psychologically we've all felt that kind of thing, you know, whether yeah. or not, I think yeah, it's not, a good way to put it. Yeah. not that I'm a co coherentist or like the writings of uh, Quine that much, but I will admit that Quine's sort of, analogy for the web of belief has always been very it's a very helpful analogy at least when you're when you're thinking about issues like this because that was Quine's whole point there's things that are central to the web to where if you try to take them out right the whole web sort of falls away um, but there's things on the edge of the web and you could take those out and fix them and that's sort of a really good but, way to think of it that's a yeah. really good way to describe it I think yeah so um 
maybe we could pin this and delete this, but I, I want, I've heard that before. And I know I read Quine when I was in college, but I would like to read that paper again. Um, yeah, <laughs> so I, I want you to tell me the paper uh, so I can, uh, I can read that again. Yeah, I'll definitely do that. He's, he's definitely, uh, he's doing it cause he's a coherentist. So he thinks even the, the, center can shift technically if you, you basically you can believe anything as long as you end up with a coherent set so he because he thinks just if sorry coherentism is a view of justification in the theory of knowledge so he thinks right that you're only just you have justification as long as your beliefs cohere i definitely don't agree with that but i do find his i do find him um when he describes the web of belief though in this um he's trying to describe it in a actual theory theory way as an actual systematic sort of application to justification or an analysis you might say of justification. I don't find that convincing, but I do find it very convincing as sort of a um, actual sociological or psychological description, you might say of people. Yep. I um, agree 100%. And, and when he, cause he does say something like, you know, this is, kind of how people operate i'm that's a very heavy paraphrase but he he at least intimates that like look this is how someone could shift their beliefs and it's like oh yeah that is certainly maybe actually descriptively true and so i find it useful to bring up yeah but anyway good good so the only other things that i wanted to pull out from this text that i thought were um, not the main point, but we're interesting um, in a couple of places. Um, so sometimes there are broadsides again. Chad. Go ahead. Hey, yep. sorry. Before you move on, can I just bring up one more thing about his arguments? If you're going to shift away from arguments? Well, uh, yes. Go ahead. Okay. It's going to be quick, but because you, you focused on the dimensions of brothers and sisters, he uses lots of arguments. Uh, two of them that I've always taken to be kind of strong arguments are, well, not two. They're two different passages, which are basically making the same point is from Matthew 1, 18 through 25, mm -hmm. uh, where Matthew writes, speaking of Mary and Joseph, right? Before Mary, before Jesus is born, it makes statements about kind of their lives and what they're doing. And it says, before they came together uh, and Joseph knew her not until, right? And, and what Helvidius argues is that those passages imply that they did eventually come together and that they eventually did know each other in the biblical sense, right? In the, mm -hmm. uh, in the sense of having sex, that these are passages that hold the implication that they did have sex. And uh, my, my response to, to him on this is exactly the same with the brothers. Um, he, I think sufficiently demonstrates that those phrasing that the, the form of those statements can uh, 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 can hold such that they do not imply that the event happens afterwards, right? Um, that, um, like you could say, uh, until my day, nobody ever heard, uh, well, he, he brings up Moses, right? No one knew until that day where Moses was buried, but they still don't know. The point being that you can still not know after the fact. And he's right. So he demonstrates a possibility. But those passages, again, as... I think Trevor said pretty eloquently, you know, if you think about context, the way they're written, you know, just they do sound like they imply like they're they're basically saying, look, this marriage happened and they carried on with married things, but they held off on these things until Jesus was born. So I'm not really adding anything other than to say I think the response is the same as before. 
it could still hold in terms of possibility, but not probability for me. So anyway, sorry, I just wanted yeah. to, make sure to throw that one in. No, I, I, yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, you brought up one of the things that I wanted to bring up, which were sort of broadsides against Christianity that are sometimes used. Um, and actually they come up in the, um, sort of the modernist debates uh, about what eventually become the five fundamentals of faith, the uh, the virginity of Mary before Christ. So like, you know, it's become a, it's a point of Protestant liberalism uh, that um, miracles um, are basically, if, if not uh, untrue, um, we should be suspicious of them. And so there was this like debate among German scholars. And then uh, some of this came across uh, the Atlantic in Princeton at the early part of the 20th century, uh, that the word virgin in Hebrew actually just means young woman. Um, and the idea is, hey, sudden, like the way that it's sometimes portrayed is the liberals kind of, the sort of, and I'm using liberal Protestant in a descriptive way, like they yeah. actually called it, it not, not just like the libs um, yeah. or something they were they were german protestant liberals um and they they said hey look we don't uh, we don't believe in miracles we're, we're scientific rationalists and we now know that um isaiah actually talks just about a young woman and what i like when you read the ancients is they were not unaware of this jerome yeah. says yeah there are multiple words for young woman in hebrew yeah. <laughs> and they don't always mean a virgin yeah, yeah, I found that funny too. I was like, oh yeah, I hear this brought up all the time nowadays. Like, and of course, Jerome already knew, and it's dumb that we assume that ancient peoples didn't know things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, well, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't mean to be, I, I just, it, it was interesting. The other one being uh, the death of what the one that Tom brought up was the death of Moses. And he says, I know that some people say that this was edited by Ezra uh, because he found the scrolls. Um, and, and added it in. And so again, just another point of like, people will say, oh, well, they used to believe that, uh, Moses, uh, believed in the, or Moses wrote the first five books, but we know that that's impossible because it describes his own death. Um, and Jerome's like, yeah, 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 I know. (laughs) If there's one thing that this task of reading through these early Christian writers has done for me, it's shown me that there is nothing new under the sun. Like literally people. Every single argument you will hear is one that has been rehashed by the end of the third century a thousand times. Like there aren't, it's not, it is just the most fundamental misunderstanding to think that everybody walked around in complete confusion and, um, and, and, and living suspicious lives, you know, bowing to, to uh, you know, religious superstitions and all of these kinds of things without any idea or mindset of the scientific until thankfully the Enlightenment comes along in the uh, 18th century and then everything changes. And now we understand the way the world is and we're no longer uh, fools duped by such things. Like it's all there. It's always been there. Um, you know, these guys weren't stupid. You know, the, their minds were, yeah. I mean, in all honesty, their minds were sharper than most moderns, I would think. <laughs> well, and he even, I mean, the other thing that's become kind of an interesting conversation, uh, like because the Germans are always looking for what's called the Ur text or the first text or the most uh, trustworthy text. Um, and so we sort of have this idea that there was like this one text that is the perfect text. 
that we should, you know, always use or whatever. Uh, Jerome, like the the Helvidius seems, we don't know exactly what Helvidius says, but he seems to indicate that there was maybe um, some corrupt Greek manuscripts. Um, and I don't know what he's, I can never quite tell exactly what he's referring to. I had no um, idea. I was like completely lost on that passage. Yeah, completely. Yeah, because I mean, it actually has something to do with um, about how Joseph would respond to the womb of Mary, um, yeah. and for some reason, that was where Helvidius wanted to posit a corrupt Greek text. Yeah. Um, seemed like an odd place. Um, yeah. to, <laughs> but um, yeah, when I, I read it through twice, and I was like, I I still don't understand why he thinks corruption is a helpful um, response to this particular passage. Uh, but regardless, the another just another point to be made. Jerome, Augustine, uh, Origen, all these guys are well aware um, of the fact that there are multiple authorities and they are, they're, I mean, and Origen, Jerome, they spent their lives committed to trying to find a consistent, a, a consistent text. Um, and they weren't aware of the idea of corruption, scribal error, um, and multiplicity of texts that did not bother them at, in the least um, to say that that, that means they're somehow untrue or somehow unreliable. No, uh, it just meant you had to work harder um, and do the work that they did. That's why they gave themselves to it. Yeah. I To give um, Jerome, a, I guess, kind of defense, I don't know, <laughs> to offer one point in Jerome's favor. How about that? Um, I did have a question about something Jerome brings up because I've heard this brought up in contemporary talks of Mary's perpetual virginity. And it's in 15 when he says, you say that the mother of the Lord was present at the cross and you say that she was entrusted to the disciple John on account of her widowhood and solitary condition, as if upon your own showing she had not four sons and numerous daughters with whose solace she might comfort herself. I've, I've heard about this. Well, I've heard people say things like, why is this passage here? Like, behold, this is your mother and behold, this is your son. Jesus says this from on the cross to Mary and John. Um, but why would he say this, right? If she actually had sons to take care of her. Um, and then I've heard, you know, I've heard sort of counter reactions to this, which makes sense to me in the sense that John's making more of a theological point here. And John is the latest written gospel and is sort of more, you might say theologically tainted, though that makes it sound bad, but just more like he, he does tell the story in a way to make theological points often. So I'm not, I'm not really sure though. Is there, um, I don't know. I guess I just want to know your thoughts on that passage because it is puzzling. Yeah. I will say that that I've always found to be the strongest argument for at least the idea that, that the, that the brothers and sisters mentioned aren't Mary's. Um, I, I'm not saying it like, I don't, again, coming back to possibility and probability, like I think there are other answers. I mean, the way I've tended to answer it was that, you know, the brothers and sisters were not believers. Um, and so Jesus is entrusting her to a believer. Presumably they'd all been living in community, in a community as Christians for some time without his brothers and sisters. That's been my answer to it. But nonetheless, I, I can see why somebody would say, oh, that you're, you're straining it a bit, you know, and I could see somebody taking this as a, um, as a proof text that she didn't have other children, um, in which case you now take away that argument from the idea that she was a perpetual virgin. Um, I still think if 
if that's true, if she didn't have other children, then Jesus's brothers and sisters need to be Joseph's uh, children from a prior marriage, I would need to think. I think that's a possible yeah. answer, which some Catholics yeah. have, have held to. Yeah, that would make sense to me. Um, I do. I also thought to myself, and I don't know, someone surely has probably made this argument, but it's possible that just like you said, the other um, siblings weren't believers, so he's entrusted to a believer. And in part, this was done because it, maybe it was dangerous to associate yourself politically with Jesus. And so, you know, it's like, oh, hey, go with John. John will take care of you um, because you, you know that your own uh, kids won't, I guess, at this time, possibly because you're associating yourself with me. Though I, I, I don't know. That might be a weaker thought because I, this is a thought I had in my mind that that might be true. But then again, I'm like, but then maybe the the culture was such that that would, you would still associate with your mom uh, because, you know, you have this duty as a son. I don't know, but yeah. Worth considering. Yeah. Um, well, I think, I mean, I, I don't really have much else to bring up from the text. I think we covered it pretty well. It's not terribly long for those that want to read it um, and gives us, so yeah, uh, but it, it brings us into this question, and I, I hope uh, I hope in our laughing a little bit at Jerome, we weren't uh, disrespectful. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think well, you know, we could also have some conversation about the second sophistic, and you know, the fact that this was just sort of the more uh, the sort of the culture of the time. Um, although I, I tend to think that Augustine, Augustine does not engage in any kind of um, he's not nearly as extreme in the way that he writes. Uh, to to most people as Jerome is or um, yeah so I think I mean it's it's also possible that Jerome's just a little irascible um, right <laughs> so. yeah well it is a human trait right I mean it's I, I think a good chunk of the population by far maybe maybe the vast majority of us will tend to get heated and angry in the midst of an argument rather than remain calm and composed I think I think the calm and the calm and composed is probably far more uncommon yep yeah that's my experience at least <laughs> for sure <laughs> it, it depends on the argument for me so mo i mean sometimes i can be as cool as a cucumber and then sometimes you can get me on the wrong day or on the wrong issue or something and i get really heated i think you know what really makes me the most heated and i really feel bad about this i, I i've just experienced it i think there's a certain personality type that gets me heated and I haven't quite placed my finger on what that type is, but for sure, if you're a like, if you're a a philosopher who is who contemplates and thinks about alternative views and who 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 has humility in the midst of it, I don't get heated with you. But I feel like I can get quite heated if it's somebody who makes extreme claims without considering other alternative views who maybe isn't as gifted as a thinker. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, I, mm. I think that there are personality types almost as the thing that gets me more heated than topic. Although I think maybe a topic could get me, could make me heated as well. Yeah. I get upset when I just think someone should know better. Like if they, yeah. it would be like if they, you know, have studied something and yet despite that, they seem to just say some ignorant things and, and then act and really, I, even then, sometimes I just feel more pitiful. It's it's when you do that and it's coupled with acting as if um, 
any other idea is just so stupid. Like you just, and you know, who knows? Maybe Helvidius, uh, <laughs> we don't know the tone, you know, we're kind of given some quotes from Helvidius's pamphlet. That's why I was kind of like at the beginning, like maybe he wrote like Helvidius's pamphlet was pretty bad, but you know, cause that's the only defense I could give of Jerome because then, you know, if Helvidius acted like all other views were really, really stupid, then I kind of actually sympathize with Jerome because I hate it when people just act like, oh, well, if you believe that, you're just a moron. And it's like, whoa, your dismissiveness is pretty upsetting, counting a lot of smart people actually think this. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, the things that he says about Helvidius are probably out of his control to some degree. Um, that is... He calls him a, um, a uh, yeah, a rube, a um, someone who is uneducated. He basically just says like, "You have no style. You're uneducated. You don't write and speak like an educated person." And in most cases, uh, it, it was impossible unless you were born to a wealthy family. Um, so if he even learned to write, that was to his credit. And he probably just, I mean, yeah, all, all of it seems to be a style consideration, mm -hmm. um, which was really important in their day. I mean, that was how you showed, and part of what Jerome is kind of doing, whether or not, uh, I, this is not very sympathetic, but he's basically saying like, I've done all the, I've done the hard work of my education. And now they actually believed that if you finished the rhetorical education, you were a different class of human. Um, that was part of what made you an honores, uh, one, one among the, the honorable, the noble. Um, and unless you finished your course of study, um, you, you didn't achieve that status. Um, even Cicero hints at this. Um, I mean, he's, he talks about people being, um, honorable in name only, um, who haven't actually finished their education. Um, so Jer Jerome is kind of saying like, you know, this guy, he's not on my level. He hasn't, he hasn't gone through all the hard work that I have to know how to speak correctly. Um, yeah. And that's how it actually felt. Like I said, at the beginning of the podcast, like yeah. he feels like one of these people I know who's like, I don't know, they're at an Ivy league school or something, or they're at NYU philosophy department. And they just act like everyone else is beneath them. And yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like, oh, okay, you're the enlightened ones. Cause you're at the top university. Yeah, we get it. We got to listen to what you say and your book has to get published and not someone else's. Yeah. 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 All right. Um, well, you want to call that good for this one? Thank you for listening to A History of Christian Theology. Um, I'm Chad Kim. We'll be back uh, next week with another installment of Africans Against the World. We'll look at Athanasius of Alexandria. Um, and we are planning on doing a few more recordings, a few more podcasts. Uh, Tom, Trevor, and I are going to go in-depth uh, talking about... Uh, the first uh, treatise ever written by a woman in Christian history. Um, and we'll talk about martyrdom a little bit. Uh, we're going to go back a little bit in time to do this one. Uh, but uh, after that, we're going to take on Ambrose, and we're going to talk a little bit about Augustine's uh, first teacher. So thank you for listening, um, and we hope you enjoy it.